Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, I've got a joke. What did Richard Nixon say to his wife when she complained about the meal he prepared for her? I don't know. What? I am not a cook. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm from APM, American Public Media. This is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from filmmaker Penny Lane that'll help break the ice. Her new documentary, Nuts, comes out this month. And we thought a political joke was appropriate because most of this week's show was taped live inside the Beltway. That's right. With the help of Washington, D.C. radio institution WAMU, we threw a party at the Fillmore in Silver Spring last week. Joining us were former Congressman Barney Frank and a Klumski from HBO's hit show Veep. But we kicked off the show in typical style with Small Talk. That's right, in which a media professional shares an under-the-radar news story. And our guest was Brad Jenkins. He's executive producer of Funny or Die D.C., that's an Emmy-winning website that skewers everything, including the news. That's right. But Brad's last gig was in the Obama administration, where he was a director of engagement to the creative community. And when he joined us on stage, Brendan first asked him what exactly that means. So what, did you make mixtapes for the president? Yeah, I know. Like explain <laughs> True Detective? Like, what uh, was your job? Yeah, so our office, there had to be someone when a celebrity was in town. Mm. You know, White House Correspondents Dinner Weekend, or there's a celebrity... Uh, who wants a tour, there would just be someone at the White House who would have to do that. Mm. And so it was awesome. My, my <laughs> wife was so jealous because I would come home each day and tell her that I like, hung out with Rihanna for eight hours. <laughs> so yeah, it was a cool role. I, I did that. That was not my only job. Uh, I did a lot of outreach to the progressive community as well, yeah. political uh, organizations. But yeah, the, the creative community was important for a lot of uh, the president's agenda items. They all have very large platforms yeah. and they knew how to reach people. So we you would know, also be proactive about reaching the creative community as well. well we, yes. It just so happens we have a clip. Yeah, oh, speaking cool. of yeah. which, you got the president to appear on uh, Zach Galifianakis, the comedian's rather absurd talk show, <laughs> Between Two Ferns. Here's an example. First question. In 2013, he pardoned the turkey. What do you have planned for 2014? We'll probably pardon another turkey. We, we do that every Thanksgiving. Was that depressing to you, seeing a, a, a one turkey kind of taken out of circulation, a turkey you couldn't eat? <laughs> <laughs> just deadpan. So, <laughs> I, f I feel like after you pulled that off, there would just be an urge to get the president on everything. Just, yeah. just his being there is hilarious. What, give us an example of something you were like, you have to do this, and the president just said, no, I'm not going to do that. Honestly, most things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most things you pitch the president, similar to this, there's a huge no. <laughs> the, the reason why that worked and the reason why we did it was it was a little bit of crisis control because... Uh, we had a number of ideas for the president to get out the word about the Affordable Care Act. This oh, was like months, if not a year, before the open enrollment period started. Most of them got batted down because they were mostly silly ideas like this. But when the website didn't work and we oh, yes. were down, you know, the website didn't work for two months. Yeah, for yeah. those who don't remember. When, I don't know when if you remember healthcare.gov. Remember that? When that people tried out? to log in and they couldn't get in exactly. to for, register. Uh, which was very embarrassing, but it was also very important for us to reach young people. We needed young people to enroll on these exchanges in order for it to work. So we had to do something very big and bold. And we had all this data and all these metrics to prove that this video was actually gonna reach the demographic mm. that we had to reach, so. Yeah, because I mean, like, Zach Alphanakis would not be my first <laughs> conduit. <laughs> 
to the right. people. Yeah, that- we, we had to reach largely men. Uh, oh. Young men were, the vast majority of young uninsured were young men. And that those videos each average like 10 to 15 million a piece. Oh my God. Mm. And it's an interview format. So the format that allows the president to kind of poke fun at himself and the Affordable Care Act is perfect. Yeah. Um, and we can do it very quickly. Uh, from when we decided to do it with the help of Bradley Cooper, which is another story, <laughs> um, to when we actually released it, it was like two weeks. But it, the video was viewed 40 million times in like three days. Wow. And it was incredible. And so the. Uh, and YouTube didn't crash. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, to be honest, we actually had to talk to CMS, the Center for Medicaid Services, who does the website. Mm. And we had to let them know that this was going to happen. So it was like, we're going to get traffic like we've never received before. <laughs> yeah. 40 million high guys at home are about to call in. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Get ready. That's we right. got them healthcare, man. <laughs> they need it. <laughs> the optometrists were overjoyed. Um, all right. Um, well, we're going to have to go to the hospital if we don't get you to tell us the story. Our producer will kill us. Oh, that's yes. true. Yeah. So um, what story do you have for us? Uh, this takes place in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. okay. Tenants of an apartment complex got home about a week ago. And there was a, an addendum to their lease on their front doors that said that they had to go on Facebook and like the apartment complex's uh, Facebook page. Oh, my God. Wait for this. And if they did not do it in five days' time, it's a breach of the lease. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> um, so they create a huge uproar. Uh, they went on the page. They, like, downvoted it. The local media got a hold of it. So... <laughs> yeah. The Facebook endeavor did not work out Good. so well. So it, it feels like you should get your rent lowered after you go through that, though, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I felt mostly bad for him because I knew that he created that Facebook page to impress his, like, you know, childhood girlfriend from high school, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, my yeah. apartment complex is beautiful. <laughs> it's so hot, and It did guys. not work out very well, well that's, for him. Yeah. And if you liked that apartment building, your ex-apartment building might get sad. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. all these politics really involved in Facebook. Right, so. relationship is complicated. Brad Jenkins, executive producer of Funny or Die DC, recorded live last week at the Fillmore Silver Spring in Maryland. And among our other guests that night was DC cocktail hero Derek Brown. He's been on the show before. He writes about drinks for outlets like The Atlantic and The Washington Post, and also runs a slew of celebrated bars, including The Columbia Room. GQ once said the place makes the best martini in America, which was not at all why we happened to stop by the next day. No, that was a total... Yeah, we were just in the neighborhood. Indeed. Anyway, uh, as martini lovers, we were dazzled by Derek's knowledge of martini lore and by his version of the drink, which was not what we expected. So later, I taped an interview with him about martinis. First, though, I asked about something he'd done on stage, namely shake two Boston shakers full of booze precariously over his head. I wanted to know if they'd ever exploded all over his customers, and he said no, but he had soaked himself. Yeah, it's one of the funniest stories when you're completely sober driving home if you happen to be pulled over and you're covered in the smell of gin. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You're Listen, like, I was double shaking, officer. I was completely double shaking. <laughs> I swear to you, this is my job. <laughs> anyway, uh, after our show, mm-hmm. Brendan and I were lucky enough to have drinks with you at right. the Columbia Room, and you schooled us on our favorite drink, the martini, which is what we have called you in to talk about today. Good. 
first of all, this is our history lesson with booze segment. So let's start with the history. When and where did the martini come into being? Well, it's one of the most amazing things about the martini is it's still obscured by history. Mm. We could uh, point to a couple different theories about an Italian guy or the martini in Rossi vermouth, but none of them are proven in any way. Why don't you just give us the best one to tell over a martini? <laughs> well, the one that I like the most turns out that sometime... Uh, in the 1890s is when the uh, martini shows up, right? Okay. Um, in 1867, I think it's about 67, is when the Manhattan is first kind of in existence. Almost several decades before. That's right. And then somewhere in between, there is a missing link, and that is the Martinez. The Martinez right. is mentioned in an O.H. Byron book as being essentially a Manhattan in which you replace the rye with gin. And all of a sudden, you have a Martinez. And it, you know, it's very common for bartenders to sub one spirit out for another and create sure. a different drink. That's part of our creative process. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that the Manhattan became the Martinez, became the martini, which then was using sweet vermouth and potentially a sweetened gin like old Tom gin, and then became the dry martini using dry gin and dry vermouth with orange bitters as well. That's kind of become this thing that people leave out. Yeah, orange bitters was originally a major part of the martini? Absolutely. And so if you look at the form of it, it looks exactly like a Manhattan, except for you've swapped out the ingredients. But you can't find a smoking gun as to the date or the person, the genius, I might add, who's, who made this drink. Because I personally think the Manhattan's an okay drink. I like it. But the martini, to me, is the king of cocktails. Now, I agree with you. King of cocktails. I think it is kind of the, the pinnacle of, of cocktail craft. But why? At what point do you think it ascended to that realm? So I think that there's one of the reasons why is because it really is such a reflection of who we are as humanity. You know, there, there is these savage elements to the dry martini. You know, the gin, the juniper goes back to some ancient people who lived by, you know, these juniper forests and used it for sustenance and, and medicinal mm -hmm. reasons and, and infuse it into their, you know, lumpy beer or whatever they did. And then you have this very clean, crisp, drink that reminds you of jazz and skyscrapers and modernity. And so it has this juxtaposition of savagery and civilization. Yeah, well, let's let's get to this. It okay. is it, This is, as we say, it's a very simple drink, basically two ingredients and, a, and some sort of uh, garnish. Right. But there is a fierce debate as to what makes a perfect martini. Uh, one of the few things Brendan and I don't argue about is what we believe that to be. Okay. And for us, <laughs> it's just a rinse of vermouth in the glass then gin over ice stirred, and you strain it into the glass, and a spear of olives. Your ideal martini is just totally different. Tell us about it. What is the, what is the recipe? It's very easy. It's almost easier than any other drink in that regard. It's 50-50. 50% 50 gin, 50% vermouth. We use one and a half ounces of gin and one and a half ounces of vermouth. Which is just a crazy amount of vermouth for a lot of dry martini yeah. drinkers. Well, I do think the reason why people started dumping the vermouth is because it's the least alcoholic part of it, yeah. right? It has the lowest ABV or proof. People just wanted more booze in there. They wanted Yeah, more and I mean, when you're talking about Churchill or Hemingway, who were notorious, you know, Hemingway had his 15 to 1 martini, which he called the Montgomery, which was named after Field Marshal Montgomery, because he said those were the odds that he preferred before he went into battle. And, <laughs> right. You know, and then you have Churchill just waving the bottle and saluting France or whatever. I mean, these guys are not, they're, they are great men in many ways, but they're not examples of uh, the best types of drinkers. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> they drank way too much and they yeah. prefer the alcohol. Now, I like to drink too, so I don't want to totally knock them down. But um, to me, the vermouth is a civilizing agent. I mean, it seems to me that that makes it kind of more oily and, and heavy. Yeah, that's right. And that's sort of the juxtaposition of the martini. On one hand, it is very crisp. In fact, the 50-50 is sometimes referred to as the crisp cocktail. But the viscosity of it and the richness of the drink, I think, should be there too. So um, I kind of describe it as like a, a sort of robust or, or should I say rotund uh, ballet dancer, you know, um, really beautiful in their movement, but at the same time, heavy. That's interesting. I'm going to think of the uh, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies where the hippopotamuses are dancing in Fantasia, the Disney movie. I think if you think of all that, you've definitely had a couple martinis. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> um, you also, if one asks for olives, you serve them on the side, which seems crazy to me. Why wouldn't you want it on the little iconic spear sitting in the drink? Um, to me, it should be on the side. Like, first of all, why waste the space in the drink itself by adding <laughs> olives? That's that does make so much sense. What have we been doing all our lives <laughs> where we're like having less gin so we can have olives? That's right. And the second part of it is that usually people don't chill them. And so you're throwing a little heat bomb into the drink when the drink should be icy cold. Okay. But also if you put them on the side, the, the olives don't soak up the gin. That's part of the delight is eating that kind of gin-soaked olive. Well, here's my recommendation for that. Ask them to pour a little gin over your olives. <laughs> Are you going to charge me extra for that, though? <laughs> not, not you. <laughs> oh, not anyone listening you. to this. Just uh, come to the Columbia Room, and I'll, I'll make sure you get a discount on a splash of gin. Look at that. It's like a coupon <laughs> for listening to our show. Derek Brown, he is behind the bar, literally and figuratively, at the Columbia Room in D.C. And one other bit of trivia Derek shared, the vodka martini was originally called the kangaroo. That's right. Whereas Rico and I call it the abomination. Yes. A martini has gin in it, America. No matter what James Bond says. Yeah, he's a fictional character, for God's sake. But listener, perhaps you disagree. And we're actually curious about how you take your martini. Even if it is totally wrong. Even then, we've got a poll on our site right now, which seems fitting this election season. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and do let us know. All right, coming up, former Congressman Barney Frank lives up to his last name. Uh And actor Anna Klumski tells us how Roberta Flack changed her life when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and you're about to hear some more of the live show we taped last week in the D.C. metro area. Coming up is our conversation with actor Anna Klumski from HBO's Veep. But first, we welcome none other than former Congressman Barney Frank to the stage. That's right. He was the representative from Massachusetts from 1981 to 2013 and became known for his great mind, sharp wit, and rumpled style. Indeed. He had a hand in legislation from civil rights laws to financial regulation. He's also one of the most prominent gay politicians in the U.S. We spoke to him about his book, Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Gay Marriage, which came out in paperback this spring. When Barney took the stage, we first noted that he, David Letterman, and Jon Stewart all retired around the same time, and then they all grew beards. We wondered why. I grew a beard because my husband wanted me to. Okay. And he's there, you can hear. All right, there we go. (laughs) Pretty straight. Give it up, Barney's husband, Jim. The fact is, you know... I came late to marriage. It wasn't an option for me for a very long time. Sure. Uh, and I thought about it, and I realized, okay, Jim has to look at my face much more than I do. So I thought <laughs> Fair it enough. was reasonable for him to decide. I don't know 
uh, about either Letterman or Stewart. I don't think. Okay. Jim has. I don't think Jim had anything to do with it. <laughs> as far as we know, we can ask Jim later. Seriously, though, we are delighted you're here. And uh, you're no stranger to public radio, actually. You are, uh, of course, known for being comfortable stating your opinion, let us say. But we were reading your book, and there's a great public radio-related anecdote in there having to do with Cokie Roberts, nay, Cokie, I believe it's Boggs? Boggs, Boggs, And a strange encounter you had with her father early in your career. Do you mind recounting that story for the folks? Yeah, uh, Cokie's father was a congressman named Hale Boggs. He was the... uh, Majority leader of the House of Representatives, Hale Boggs was a very liberal white Southerner, but he was still a white Southerner. He was the congressman from New Orleans. And uh, he was moving in the direction of recognizing that racism had to end, but it's not something you can do right away. And I think uh, people don't give elected officials like that enough credit. Mm-hmm. At any rate, I had gone to Mississippi in 1964 for the Mississippi Summer Project to document the efforts we were making to have black people register to vote. It's a kind of the freedom riders. Yes. I was very soon put into a more administrative position because, as people might not be surprised to learn, a substantial number of Mississippians, white or black, had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> I was then even closer to my New Jersey origins, and it was just, there was not a lot of communication. Out in, out in, uh, Your Bayonne accent. No, not, by, not out in the Delta. And on the way back, I stopped off in Washington, and I needed a place to stay. So I talked to Koki, who was a good friend, and um, she said, well, stay at our house. I got there, and she said, oh, good, well, you go sleep in the basement. They had a nice room in the basement. So I came upstairs that morning. He was sitting at the table. I sat down. As he later told the story, he thought I was the exterminator. <laughs> I came up the basement. His daughters had not prepared him for my arrival, and... Um, when I poured myself a cup of coffee, he figured something was up, so he asked me. <laughs> so I explained to him that I was there to uh, help with the Mississippi Summer uh, Freedom Democratic Challenge. And he said, son, uh, did you sleep okay? He said, yeah. Was the, was the bed all right? Yes, sir. Breakfast fine, the coffee good? Yes, sir. So we treated you pretty good? Oh, yes, sir, you have. Well, don't ever tell anybody, please. (laughs) And then he confronted his daughters later and said, you know I am trying hard to move in the right direction. But it sure as hell doesn't help me if it gets out that we are a stop on the Underground Railroad. (laughs) (laughs) Cokie Roberts' dad, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. You write in this book about when you were 14, you knew you were gay. You also knew you wanted to be a politician. Now, I can maybe understand knowing I was gay at 14, but being a politician. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the first things I remember, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gay and I fought hard for equality for us, but the single besetting sin of America has been racism. And that's been the most difficult struggle. And we're making great progress. Obviously, we have distance to go. But I was 14. I read in the paper a 14-year-old named Emmett Till, a black kid from Chicago, who was visiting family in Mississippi, and he looked at a white woman in the wrong way and was brutally murdered. And uh, it became clear not only that law enforcement had protected him, but they were in on it, the law enforcement. And um, then I said, well, how could this happen in America? And I learned that it was because the Southerners have been able to filibuster any legislation whereby the federal government could step in to protect people. So that, I said, I, I want to change that. That's awful. And then there were the hearings. There was Senator Joseph McCarthy, uh-huh. the worst demagogue in American history, and he was savaging people. And uh, they had a hearing to stop McCarthy. And I was really 
impressed with that, and I saw some very skillful verbal mechanics defusing this guy. I saw people who were good at talking, and I was good at talking. You know, you're good at something, not good at other things. I've been in a lifelong war with things. <laughs> uh, I break them. They don't work for me. Fortunately, Jim is very skillful at that. That's one of our great mutualities of, of, of uh, convenience. But um, I, um, Thanks, I wanted. I thought, you know, I can do that. I, I would like to help deal with this kind of racism and, and, and help deal with people like that. But you knew that you were going to have to stay closeted at that point. It wasn't an option. Um, Not even close. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower, who, you know, by today's Republican standards, obviously was very liberal. He promulgated an executive order when I was 14 that said if you were gay, they didn't use the word gay. Um, and I was talking to people who said, oh, LGBTQ. I remember when it was just F. But what happened was he put out an executive order that said if you're gay, you can't get a security clearance. Uh, the New York Times had, had headlines back then about sex perverts, meaning us. So I knew I would never be able to win an office and so I began to think, okay, I'll have to figure out a way to go to work for other elected officials and, and keep the fact that I'm, I'm gay uh, a secret. Yeah, this is your quote. Be, you wanted to be a coward but not a hypocrite. Well, well you decided, that came yeah. a little later when I decided I finally could run for office in a very unusual part of Boston, which was full of uh, people who had never lived in Boston. Uh, <laughs> well, that was, in 1972, the people who always lived in Boston were not that nice, but um, oh. it's evolved. Sorry, Boston. Boston. Well, Boston <laughs> if you're listening. We are more, broadcasting Boston. It was neutral, <laughs> but it was, uh, it's a much more uh, urbane place right now. I, I realized I could get elected in this kind of yuppie before we use the word yuppie area, but I knew if I was honest about my sexuality, I couldn't win. But I didn't make that decision at the time that I would be a coward but not a hypocrite. That is, I would not be honest about my own sexuality but I would never, ever refrain from fighting against the prejudice. You write poignantly about the agony of that kind of bifurcated life. You were at these events, uh, and you would be there for the political portion, the public portion, the fundraising portion, or the, and then when the private part of the party would start, you would have to go home. Uh, and then ultimately, you decided you, it was unbearable. Back then, there was this argument, well, um, he or she doesn't have a private life but his public career makes up for it. That's nonsense. Everybody has physical and emotional needs that cannot be satisfied by the best public career. And in fact, what I found is I behaved somewhat irresponsibly trying to find outlets. And finally, in 19, in mid-80s, I said, no, this is, I have to come out. Recovery, first of all, age was then around. And so I thought, okay, you, you gotta confront this. Secondly, I began to feel a little bit bad about people younger and more vulnerable than myself who were being out. But mostly I said, I can't live like this. So I did uh, become the first member of Congress to come out voluntarily in uh, 29, just about Memorial Day, Memorial Day 1987. We have to ask you one thing about the current political scene. You write that incremental changes made from within the system is the best way to get good things done in politics. This election season, even more so than maybe others in recent memory, there's been a lot of reaction against that way of thinking on both sides of the aisle, many clamoring for major change right now. What is your best argument against that way of thinking? 
that it is impossible, and the evidence is that it hasn't happened. If I said it was the best way, I was wrong. It's the only way. Look, the fact is, things are the way they are because forces have created them. And the notion that if you say it loudly enough and emotionally enough, you can make changes in existing structures instantly is simply wrong. Look, I, I wish it was possible to do these things more quickly, but I, I wish I could eat more and not gain weight. <laughs> and what I find is that if I ignore reality with my wishes, it doesn't get anywhere. Can you blame them for, for this kind of clamor? There, I mean, there, yes. there are people on both sides of the aisle who will... <laughs> <laughs> for not being... I'll tell you who I blame. Here's, can I blame people who tell me they are so eager to get money out of politics or, or put and, and, and deal with global warming and increase equality that they'll vote for Donald Trump, who's against every one of those things, against Hillary Clinton, who's for them, although not maybe as much. Yeah, I blame people for <laughs> stupid voting, but even more, here's who I blame. Hey, I have people, I have people, I hear people say, you know, I'll tell you this about Bernie Sanders, you should be grateful to him because he's gotten me to vote. I haven't voted. My answer is, well, shame on you. I had this with Occupy. I agreed much more with Occupy and the Tea Party, but the Tea Party out-organized Occupy politically enormously. And I asked an Occupy, an occupier uh, on the Bill Maher show, why, I said, you know, I was disappointed. I never saw a, a voter registration table at an Occupy site. She said, that's not what we were into. Well, people who help the right wing control Congress by refusing to join in our opposition to them, and then complain to me because the right wing controls Congress, get no sympathy from me. All right. Well, we, we have one more question about, it says like, who are you gonna vote for? But we're not gonna ask that because we don't have time. <laughs> Remains a mystery. Former Congressman Barney Frank recorded live last week at the Fillmore Silver Spring in Maryland. Trump and Bernie supporters direct your letters to him, not us. His book is called Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Gay Marriage. All right. And following Barney to the stage was actor Anna Klumsky. Mm. At age 10, she became one of the most beloved child stars in America when she starred in the sweet coming-of-age flick My Girl alongside Macaulay Culkin. But these days, she's perhaps better known for her multiple Emmy-nominated performance on a show few would describe as sweet. That would be Veep, the foul-mouthed HBO comedy about a vice president who, spoiler alert, becomes the first female president. Yes, Anna plays Amy, the uptight workaholic chief of staff. And here's an infamous clip of the character in action. This is from last season, when, in the midst of a fraught re-election campaign, Amy finally explodes in rage and quits in the process, telling President Selena Meyer, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, exactly what she thinks of her. I have bitten my tongue so long, it looks like a dog's cushion. But no more. You have made it impossible to do this job. You have two settings, no decision and bad decision. I wouldn't let you run a bath without having the Coast Guard and the fire department standing by, but yet here you are running America. You are the worst thing that has happened to this country since food in buckets and maybe slavery. Rico started the conversation like this. That clip is probably the only 30 seconds in all of Veep that is not laced with profanity. <laughs> yeah, thank you for giving us some. 
what has been the impact, perhaps, of your personal life of basically being around cursing all the live long day? <laughs> I do find that I have more of a potty mouth when we're filming. Um, Only during, you can put it away? Well, I have a two and a half year old, so <laughs> I've learned all of my euphemisms. You, know, I you say, actually talk about the potty. Probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I say fudge and like bull shrimp and you know. <laughs> bull, bull shrimp? <laughs> That's pretty good. Sounds the show's delicious. running off on you. That's not bad. <laughs> Jiminy Christmas and things That's like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. That scene caused enough of a sensation that the New York Times interviewed you about it. Okay. And you told them you were, quote, excited yes. to do that scene because... From my work I've done in other venues, I knew I could unleash the beast, yeah. to put it mildly. Yes. Uh, what did you mean by that? Tell us, tell us about Oh, you know, it's that, that masochistic actor thing where we really enjoy being able to have all of the emotions that we kind of have to put away offstage. Uh-huh. And um, with Amy, she's a character who usually has to watch what she says, at least around Selena, so she suppresses a lot of her emotions, and so to be able to Oof. let it go. <laughs> See, yeah, sure. We were hoping that you were going to talk about one of the jobs you had. There was a point in time where you didn't, you were not acting. Sure. And you were, t- you were taking a number of odd jobs. We understand, including like a, a fact checker at Zagat. Was yeah, that, that was my entry level position after college. I was a fact checker at Zagat. Sorry. Uh, no, don't be sorry. <laughs> to me. Here's, here's the worst thing about what I just did is that we've interviewed those guys on the show. Have you? <laughs> And yes, I it forgot. rhymes with the cat. I was just hoping you'd give us an example of you freaking out in that office over, you know, we, crab nah, cakes. We didn't have a freak out like that, but we did, I don't know. We, it was three of us doing this, this fact-checking job, which was really a, a step above telemarketing because we, would, we, would, we had like a 15-minute questionnaire and we would just cold call every property in the book that, it would, that was about to be reprinted. And so sometimes people were happy to talk to us because they had gotten good ratings some people were really unhappy to talk to us because they had gotten bad ratings, and it was like, well, it's not our fault. You know, make better food. <laughs> Sorry. So you were away from acting, but then apparently the soul singer, Roberta Flack, got you sort of back into acting. We can clap for her. You can clap for her. I barely know her. <laughs> she killed us softly with her song. <laughs> um, it was a, a, a chance meeting. I, I, I was getting, We were at the same nail salon, and... Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I had already kind of been going through, you know, that pre-life crisis of, of, oh, I, you know, deep down I wanted to try acting again, but, you know, full of so much fear of rejection. And I already kind of had the proverbial bee planted in my bonnet from, from wonderful theater that I'd been seeing. And, and I had friends who, who, you know, would say things like, you know, what your problem is you have to act again. And I'm like, no, I don't say it, you know. But meeting Roberta Flack kind of happened in that time period and uh the woman who was was giving me my pedicure said oh roberta flack's over there and i and i was like wow that's amazing (laughs) and she's like oh she knows who you are she wants to meet you and i thought that i mean that's bizarre to me i'm like really but i went over to meet her and uh of course and uh and she asked me what I was doing, and I said, oh, I'm, at the time I was an editorial assistant at HarperCollins Publishing. Yes, mm-hmm. fantasy books. And, yes, the, yeah. And well, uh, science fiction fantasy, fantasy. Down to the editors. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, but you know, so she, she said, you're not in show business anymore. And I, and I was like, oh, I'm done with that, you know, screw that. And, and she just looked at me like I was crazy and was like, really? Oh, well, all right. And... It struck a nerve with mm. me, you know, and I uh, and I, you know, went home and I was like, who am I to, you know, tell Roberta Flack that 
she's wrong about staying in show business. Because she was like, you should, you should keep up with it. And I'm like, no, I'm done, I'm done. And, yeah. But what were you afraid of? What, like, why did you need Roberta Flack to get you into it? If you had the bee in your bonnet, you'd done it as a young Well, lady. yeah, well, it's, you know, I had had some modicum of success as a kid, but then you go through puberty and, you know, different things happen to your body or whatever, and you're still trying to get a job. And I think as an adolescent, rejection is hard for anybody, and everybody goes through that as an adolescent. And for, for me, having kind of an entire industry head up that rejection just was, just was not fun. I didn't want to go through that again. I just didn't want to go, go through it. But thankfully, as an adult, once I did unpack all this stuff, all these little signs that were being sent me in New York, and like Roberta Flack, I was able to realize that it didn't matter what the industry thought of me or if I ended up on, on covers of magazines or if people thought I was pretty or whatever. I wanted to tell stories and be the bridge of great text to an audience. So all of the fear of rejection just became much smaller than the desire to pursue this craft. And now you get to say F words every five and seconds. Now I guess, yeah, yes, that's right. Yes, it's beautiful like text. <laughs> Anna Klumski, you can catch her on season five of Veep right now on HBO. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, Barney Frank joins Anna on a very small couch, by the way. Yeah, it was more of a love seat. It was, but they persevered so they could answer our audience's etiquette questions. You don't want to miss that. Plus, Hailu Mergia, an Ethiopian keyboard legend, tells us about his strange practice habits when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and we're in the midst of listening back to a show we taped last week before a live audience at the Fillmore Silver Spring, just outside Washington, D.C. It's a party we threw with help from our pals at the local public radio station, WAMU. In a few minutes, you'll hear a live performance from D.C. native by way of Ethiopia, Hailu Mergia. But first, let's learn some manners. Yes. So, after chatting with actor Anna Klumski, star of HBO's Veep, former Congressman Barney Frank joined her on stage to answer our audience's etiquette questions. And the first one came from a woman named Alex. So I didn't get my friend a birthday gift this year, and now she is upset with me. But I never buy birthday gifts for anyone because I'm terrible at it, and it's a lot of pressure. So am I a bad friend if I don't get her anything? And aren't we too old for birthday hoopla anyway? Uh-huh. Is this a friend who, who has gotten birthday gifts from you before? No. Hmm. Did she get you one? Uh. No. Sounds like she's going through something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I mean, to, to me, it feels like it's some other stuff that she's got to work out. So maybe as a birthday present, you could get her some therapy. <laughs> that would be sweet. <laughs> See how mad she is after that. <laughs> would that be helpful? Also, but I, I like the last thing here. Aren't we too old for birthday hoopla anyway? Yeah, when is it's... the cutoff, do you think, for birthdays hmm, being a big for deal? For hoopla, I would think about uh, 11. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. For presents, depending on the relationship. All right. I I got one of my TV shows I do watch and love is The Big Bang Theory. Mm. And there is is Sheldon's theory. He gets very angry when people give him presents because they have obligated him to reciprocate. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for that. (laughs) 
<laughs> my, my father always taught me to, he always gave presents because he, he read that the hobbits always gave presents <laughs> on their birthday. Wow. And so as a kid, I would, he would give me a birthday present on his birthday. Yeah, I guess I the best thing I would do with this friend is <laughs> to, to the remind her that it is better to give than to receive, and you didn't want to be better than her. Elegant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. There's your advice, We finally came up with something you can use. Uh, so this next question, Nora. This question is for Congressman Frank. In an era when hosts are expected to accommodate for every possible food aversion or allergy of their guests, it seems odd that hosts don't feel obligated to accommodate the needs of left-handed diners. You are a known and respected Southpaw, so my question is, in addition to arranging seating to minimize elbow bumping, what are other ways a host can accommodate left-handed guests? <laughs> wow, a lot of, a lot of lefties, lefties out here. You just got yeah. the lefty vote. That is a very good question. Um, one, don't expect us to open the wine because corkscrews are right-handed. Mm. Ah. Right-handed right people don't realize this, but toasters are right-handed. Pencil sharpeners don't have them anymore, but they're right-handed. <laughs> Scissors are very definitely right-handed. Doorknobs are right-handed. So that, you could, you could do that. Could be, <laughs> change don't, don't change me, all the doorknobs in your Don't ask right. me to open, uh, to open the wine. And the other thing is, when I sit down and there are place settings, have a little initial, I don't need a place card as to where to sit. I need to know, this is your cup. That's your fork. <laughs> so I don't label my butter plate so I don't grab somebody else's butter plate. That's a good right left. So that's seriously an issue. So I would like to have the place settings clearly labeled. All right, that's All good. Right. Anna, are you left-handed or right. no, right-handed? Right. Okay. All right. There you go. I wish you were still in Congress, man. You could have gotten a law passed where the plates have to be labeled. Leslie. It can be so distracting to have a meaningful conversation when cell phones are constantly buzzing and beeping and flashing around you. So how do you politely tell your dinner guests that the dinner table is a cell phone-free zone? I mean, I always, I'm always best having dinner one-on-one -on -one with people, so it's a lot easier if it's just one person and you can say, oh, you know, do you have stuff to check? And then the person's like, oh, I do, I'm sorry. And you're like, okay, that's okay. You know, like, it's a negotiation. Mm -hmm. But eventually, everyone puts it away because they realize, like, this isn't cool. Yes. Um, I, but I can't imagine if I'm hosting a dinner to kind of lay down the law. But I suppose if you're hosting a dinner, it's your, it's your rules. So yeah, you get sure. to say what you want. Barney? Well, one, I would say in general, you said, how do you politely tell people? I think politeness is a greatly overvalued. <laughs> second, it is second in being overvalued only to patience. <laughs> patience is an invitation to have other people waste your time with trivia and repetition. <laughs> politeness is an invitation to misunderstanding, etc. Now, the opposite of politeness is not rudeness, it is direct. You say, <laughs> okay. please don't use your cell phone. On the other hand, I wouldn't get too hip. I mean, you know, suppose somebody's kid's sick. You really don't want her to use the cell phone? Exactly. So mm -hmm. say, please be, don't use the cell phone yeah. unless you have to. Let's See? be judicious. That's yeah. right, not being a revolutionary about cell phones. Yes. Barney's advocating for. There you go, incremental yes, change. Incremental change. Right. Yes, indeed. That's what we're looking for. Well, wait. 
Uh, all right, we, I think we have time for Maybe one more. One more, sadly. So new neighbors just moved in next door to our row house here in DC, and there's a shared tree box out front. They have an adorable three-year-old who I've seen playing in it with his trucks, super cute, but that tree box is effectively the neighborhood dog toilet. Yep. Do I tell them this? There are a lot of dogs on our block. But you see the three-year-old playing, are they present? There was someone there who I think was not the parent, which is a further wrinkle. I mean, this, what I would do, I, I mean, I would just wait for it to come up. I don't think it's a, you know, ring the doorbell, it's nice to meet you, by the way. You should know that, you know, there may be feces where your kid plays. I, you know, all right, I, all right. Yeah, yeah, On that yeah. note, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That brings us to the end of our show. <laughs> Sad but true, but... Wow. Yes. Wow. Public really radio, ladies and gentlemen. Down the toilet. Veep star Anna Klumsky and former Congressman Barney Frank gamely confronting some occasionally unsavory <laughs> etiquette questions during a live taping of our show last week at the Fillmore Silver Spring in Maryland. And folks, if you have an etiquette question... You don't have to ask it in front of 500 people who've been drinking for several hours. All you have to do is send it to us, uh, two guys who might have been drinking for an hour or so. Yeah. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. So that round of etiquette didn't quite close out our night in the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. We left our audience with one more treat, a performance by Hailu Mergia. That's right. He's a legend in his native Ethiopia, known for his pioneering work on the keyboard in the renowned Walias Band, which in the 70s was basically the soundtrack to Addis Ababa's nightlife. He emigrated to D.C. in the 80s, and except for a few home recordings, he retired from music. That is until Brian Shimkovitz the guy behind an indie label called Awesome Tapes from Africa, found one of those cassettes. Mm. He released it, and a whole new generation took to the music. Now, before we play you Hailu's tune, here's an interview I taped with him and Brian at a music festival a couple of months back. I first asked Hailu about his old band. Well, I, I used to play in Ethiopia, like many clubs and uh, different hotels with the Wallace Band, which is my, uh, my band. Can you describe the Wallace Band for people who... So the Wallace Band was playing throughout the 70s at the Hilton Hotel. In Ethiopia. Yeah, in Ethiopia. The Hilton Hotel through the 70s was the fancy, swanky hotel. The diplomats, rich guys from abroad, fancy Ethiopians were hanging out. They were playing there two, three times a night, all night long. And that is the spot, and it was the spot for Upper Crust. And then they had the chance to perform in America. They came over to America, and half of them didn't come back. At the time, there was kind of a difficult political situation in the country. Things were getting pretty dark, yeah. especially for the music scene. I recently heard from Hailu, we were talking about that era. And, you know, there was like a curfew, and people would go and start playing around 11 or midnight and the audience would stay at the club the whole night because you couldn't leave the club and go out on the street so the bands would play till six in the, in the morning, morning. yeah would... so the bands would play all night all right and so if you were going to pick up either of you actually Hailu, a song from your band back then that really represents kind of what you guys sounded like maybe one of your more popular songs what song would it be now uh, one of the the one of the famous uh, the music right now is like uh, Music Oisult, which is a part of Chevalo album. And Chevalo also is uh, by itself is uh, very popular also. Yes, yeah, so the most popular song of Hailu's career and arguably the most popular song in all of Ethiopian pop music uh, worldwide is a song called Music Oisult, which is on the Chebalu album.
Brian, tell me. Actually, you tell me how you found. Hi, Lou. Sure. So, I was on a trip in Ethiopia, and I like to go around to different cities and look for cassettes. And I found his tape among many other interesting tapes. But I went back to Berlin, where I was living at the time, and I listened to the tape two times in a row. Completely blown away. Never heard music like this. You know, traveled all over Ethiopia. Never heard anything remotely quite like this and I had to find this guy so I googled him he had a blogspot page that happened to have his cell phone number on it <laughs> I dialed him up it was after midnight in Berlin but he was still awake in DC of course and so I said hey you know you haven't been playing right let's try to find a way to do this stuff and you know reissue these records so you get this phone call from this crazy guy in in Germany yeah uh, yeah when I uh, when I uh, get called from uh, Brian and I was so and I was so wonder how he contacted me and I asked him why uh, all stories and he told me that he find my cassette and he wanna re-release it and then I said okay and then we make a deal and then of course uh, I was so happy when he called me about it and then you know that's how we keep on doing it until now. Yeah, and he's just really enthusiastic and really happy to play music. Somebody who hasn't played for twenty five or whatever years, it's like. They should be able to play. Now, I heard that you you said that you practiced almost every day, even when you weren't playing. Yes, yes, because you know, since I uh, while I stayed here in uh, in the state, and then you know, I tried to play with the trio for some years, and then after that, I quit playing music. But I was just practicing in my house or in my car everywhere I, because I have a keyboard in my car. I was so gonna I say, how pra- do you practice in your car? You had a keyboard in your car. Uh, well, my uh, keyboard is like. Um, it works with the battery, you know, like a AA mm-hmm. battery. So I just, after I drop my customer, and then I just uh, grab my keyboard from my, my trunk and then sit behind the seat, and then, you know, I just practice until the next trip. While you're waiting for fares at the airport. Yeah, because it's a long queue waiting in line for more fares. And he sits in the back, in the back seats, you know, because the <laughs> steering wheel, I guess, would, yeah. make, would make it difficult. Do your fellow drivers know? Have they ever talked to you about the sounds coming out of your vehicle? Uh, yeah, everybody knows about that because I have a special place that sits, you know, like. You have the, your spot. Uh, yeah, I have my spot. I just sit there and just practice. And, you know, some of them, when they walk, they just look at me and say, What kind of music is this? Because the drivers are, you know, from different countries. So yeah. That's how I do it, and uh, everybody likes uh, like it. Musician Hailu Mergia, along with Brian Shimkovitz, the man behind the record label Awesome Tapes from Africa. And folks, now you know where to go for a free concert, the Dulles Airport taxi stand. (laughs) It's worth putting up with the traffic. And Mm -hmm. that's the dinner party download for this week, everyone. Next week, actor Rashida Jones, formerly of Parks and Rec and The Office, now of the show Angie Tribeca, talks to us about the obligations that come with being an overdog. We'll explain what that means, fear not. Mm-hmm. Till then, you can keep up with us on Twitter or on Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Or you can listen to previous episodes of the DPD, including the live gigs we taped in New York, L.A., Raleigh, North Carolina, and the Twin Cities. Oof. Man, we're road dogs. Yeah. By subscribing to our podcast, find us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcasted. This week's live show would not have been possible without the help of our crack producer, Jackson Musker, and executive producer, 
producer Larissa Anderson. Thanks also to our associate producer Nina Patak, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, Brad Fisher, our technical director, and to J.J. Yor, Paul Mazzacci, and countless others at WAMU and the Fillmore Silver Spring. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties, political party conventions, tea parties. You know, you get the idea. After shopping at a party store. Also it works. works for anything, really. Yes. Uh, we're just going to let you bask in a little more of this tune from Hailu Mergia, accompanied by bandmates Ken Joseph on drums and Alam Sagud Kabuda on bass, performing with us live in D.C. The song is called Yegele Nesh. Bon appétit. Hi, Lou Mergia, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.